we've probably wrapped up one of the most eventful moments and months in sports. I mean, we saw some crazy free agency signings in the NFL and in the MLB. You know, the lockdown ended. We got the March Madness. We got the Final Four coming to you right now. Duke and North Carolina looks to continue their rivalry. Can Coach K keep his legacy going just one small step closer to reaching out on top? Villanova and Kansas, the other matchup going down. The Bucks and the Nets were thrashing it out last night. We saw potentially, you know, a possible preview of the NBA playoffs this year if Brooklyn can squeeze in. We also got a little, you know, a little, t- you know, getting in the time machine, traveling back in time to what happened last year in the playoffs between these two teams. We'll touch up on that. We got potential MLB standings. I'm going to give my prediction on who's going to come out on top. Probably going to go over probably the, you know, just the top three teams as X factors in each division. Which players need to stand out and which players can make that extra push for their team to get them on top in the division. We got some fun topics to talk about today. So we're going to get at it. We're going to waste no time. I'm Julius Lux of Your Lux Ran Out, and we're going to get started right now. And here we go. We're going to get off to just some small, some small news going around. We're going to start with the NHL. We don't talk about hockey enough on this show. And to be honest, you know, I'm not the biggest, you know, hockey guru in terms of my knowledge, but I know enough, I'd say. But we're going to get into some small news. So Connor McDavid, the reigning MVP, this man is the first player in the league to get 100 points this season. He's the first person to reach that total. Once again, just doing incredible things on the ice. We got Austin Matthews. He is continuing his incredible season and potentially the league's MVP this year. He's become the first American-born player to score 50 goals in a season since John LeClaire did it in 97-98. He's also the fastest to 50 goals in a season since 1995 and the 1996 season. He's done this in 62 games, and he's also the first Maple Leafs player to reach the mark of 50 goals in a season. So Austin Matthews continuing his MVP case for this season. You know, I got my boy, you know, I'm a, I'm a Rangers fan, so I got my goalie out there, Igor Shesterkin, doing the most out there. I, Of course, I'd love to see him win MVP, and he's got a strong case, but the way it's looking, Austin Matthews is going to be the headliner for the MVP this season. So that's some news on the hockey side of things. We're going to get into just a thing that we should touch on, of course, because this is a day where you just, you know, you got to recognize greatness, and you got to recognize a hero. You know, today's April 1st. I'm recording this on April 1st. And today would have been Sean Taylor's 39th birthday, if you were very aware of who Sean Taylor was, an electrifying player at the University of Miami. He also played in the NFL, drafted fifth overall by the Washington Redskins at the time, now Washington Commanders, in the 2004 draft. He played four seasons, but was tragically murdered in 2007, protecting his family from a robbery. He would have been 39 today, and I just think, you know, April. we, we look at April 1st as, you know, April Fool's joke, you know, people are just joking with each other, but, you know, you got to come back to reality sometimes. And you got to recognize this man sacrificed himself for his family to protect his family. And this guy was an incredible talent and obviously one of the biggest what-ifs in sports. And it's just, you know, very upsetting to see this, you know, it happened such a long time ago. But we got to recognize Sean Taylor today, of course. You know, he would have been 39 Rest in peace to Sean Taylor. Always will be a college football legend at the U and will always be a legend, not just on the field, but off the field for what he did and his actions. We had a little wild night in the NBA last night. 
DeMar DeRozan ordered a 50-piece last night in the overtime win against the Clippers. The Bulls was on top, 135-130. to So here's an interesting fact about DeMar DeRozan's 50-point night. Sixth player in Bulls history to do that, but we're just not going to end there. We've seen a lot of players this past month score 50 or more, and we were looking at like an offensive surge at one point. This is the ninth 50-point game in March. So he ended the month with another 50-point performance in the NBA. The ninth. There were only nine 50-point games from the October to February stretch combined. The nine 50-point games this month is the most since December of 1962. And there's just more to it. DeRozan is the 14th different player with a 50-point performance this year, which is the most in NBA history. There have been seven different players with 50-point games this month, which is also a calendar record, meaning seven different players have put up 50-point performances. I believe LeBron has two of them, but it, that's pretty insane if you look at it. So we saw an offensive surge, especially from, you know, we saw LeBron do his thing. Jokic had an incredible month. I mean, listen to these numbers Jokic had in the month of March. He really elevated his case for MVP because I, I made a podcast episode a few like a few weeks ago talking about my MVPs. I had Joel Embiid. I had Jokic, I believe, in my third or fourth, you know, spot. Jokic this month had 449 total points, 191 total rebounds, 119 total assists. He is the second player to ever finish a month in top 10 in all five categories since blocks and steals became official, which, by the way, he was tied for seventh in steals and tied for sixth in blocks for the month. So, you know, this is a very strong case for Jokic to get back-to-back MVPs. And he's doing this without Jamal Murray and Michael Porter Jr. And the Nuggets are making a strong case in the West right now. They are elevating their game. Jokic is stepping up when needed. And he's dominating. I mean, this guy, you know, you look at this guy, you don't even think he looks like an athlete, but this guy is dominating like no other right now. And he might have honestly taken the reins for MVP this season. He might get that extra push. He might get that extra push. But let's get into the Bucks and the Nets. Last night was a thriller. My goodness. And it looked like Brooklyn, like in the first half, had better control because Milwaukee was only shooting 39% off passes. Brooklyn was shooting 78% off of passes. But as soon as the second half unraveled, we saw the Greek freak come to life. And this also happened after a controversial Chris Middleton uh, ejection. This guy went to go foul Bruce Brown off of a fast break. Bruce Brown went to slow down, stole the ball, slowed down to go for a dunk, but Chris Middleton was on his horse. And I mean, you got to give credit to Middleton hustling his tail off to get to the other end. But as Brown was going up for the dunk, Middleton held onto the arm, and I guess he dragged him down. And that is seen as a flagrant two. And a flagrant two, you get ejected from the game. So he only finished with 16 points, and that is exactly why. So Milwaukee goes down without their best shooter, perhaps. And Giannis Antetokounmpo, as soon as we saw Middleton go out, and also Antetokounmpo took a hard shot to the back. 
But after that, it just seemed like he was he was he he got ignited. I mean, not only did he finish with 44, 44 points, 14 rebounds, six assists, but he hit a game tying three pointer in regulation, which also passes Kareem Abdul Jabbar as the most points in the Bucks franchise history. Back to back, 40 point. 14 rebound, 6 assists, 9. He shot 67% from the field. As I mentioned before, the game-tying three-pointer to send the team to overtime. And he also sunk the game-winning free throws in overtime. This guy right here has put up back-to-back 40-point games, as I've said. And he's also battling with LeBron and Embiid for the scoring title. And to put up back-to-back 40-point nights as well as get your team elevated to the top of the East. I believe they're second seed at the moment. But at one point, they were fifth. I mean, Giannis is battling for the MVP as well. I mean, this is an insane run for MVPs this season. You know what's crazy? We haven't even mentioned Kevin Durant in the MVP chant. The MVP chats, like we haven't, because we've seen Embiid what he's doing. We've seen Giannis what he's doing. Jokic, John Morant, DeMar DeRozan. These guys are insane right now and crunching down to the final stretch of the season going into the playoffs. The Eastern Conference right now is pretty tight when it comes to seeding purposes. Milwaukee clinches with the win against Brooklyn. They clinch a spot in the playoffs. They're half a game behind the Heat for first. The Celtics are in third. Sixers have fallen to fourth. Chicago in fifth and Toronto in sixth as of right now. Brooklyn is still currently the eighth seed. So what happened last night? What why what happened? Let's see. You can't stop Giannis Antetokounmpo without Ben Simmons. That's what it proved to me. Ben Simmons, as soon as he gets healthy, whenever that's going to be, because apparently a herniated disc. You know that's that's some serious stuff. But this is why Brooklyn got Ben Simmons because the offense wasn't even on their A game and they still put up a fight. Kevin Durant didn't shoot as efficiently as we've seen. Kyrie Irving didn't shoot as efficiently as we've seen. I mean, Durant went 10 for 21, but you see like some of the shots he missed and you would look and be like, that's a shot he normally hits every day. There was one impressive shot Durant made where it was over Giannis and Brooke Lopez. Double teamed. And that right there just proves how he's the most unguardable player that I've ever seen. But that is not, you know, that's something Giannis is really making an argument for because last night they couldn't contain him. And who can? But I mean, at one point, Bruce Brown for Brooklyn was the leading scorer. He had himself a night, by the way. He had himself a night. 23 points, sunk three clutch shots from three, made all his shots from the from the free throw line, eight for 17 from the field. Bruce Brown had himself a game. Bruce Brown did well. Kyrie Irving, like I said, not as efficient. He went nine for 22 from the field. Four of those were three-pointers. So, I mean, Brooklyn wasn't even on their A game. And they still put up a fight. They still put up a fight and still were winning at one point. Here is where I'm going to go back a little bit. We're going to go to the final seconds of regulation. Game is tied. Giannis just hits the, just hits the game tying three. Passes Abdul-Jabbar as the, the franchise leader for points scored in, in Bucks history. Kevin Durant gets the ball on the inbound. What a shocker, right? I mean, you knew you knew where the ball was going. I believe it was about 18 seconds when the inbound pass came in. Kevin Durant stood right around the half court line 
till nine seconds get rolling. So nine seconds, Durant goes to the basket. By the time he gets to the top of the key or the elbow area, there's four seconds on the clock. By then, you get double teamed. So four seconds left, you get double teamed. That is not enough time, in my opinion. As soon as the double team crashes to you, I don't see that as enough time for Durant to look to see who's open, pass it, and then get a good shot off on time. I know the goal in that play was for Durant to get the last shot. I know the point was to stall the time so Milwaukee doesn't get a chance to score to get a chance to either tie or win the game. I am 100% okay with that. However, by the t- just the way the play was designed, great defense, of course, on Milwaukee's part, and they didn't get a good shot off. Durant missed the, get- the go-ahead winner, and that forced the game into overtime. Go to overtime, Giannis knocks down the two free throws, Nice set, nice play designed by Steve Nash to get Durant the ball. And he had a decent look. However, turnaround three, tough shot to make. And I mean, we saw this happen last year at Durant in the playoffs in game seven, where he put up 48, tried elevating the Nets past the Bucks, but it's hard to do that single-handedly when you have a half-crippled James Harden and no Kyrie Irving with help. And Durant turned around, rattled around the rim, just didn't fall in. So we kind of got a gl- like a little rewind of what happened last year. Bucks come out on top of 120 to 119. So as I mentioned before, the Nets are 22nd in the league. This was according to, I believe, Dwayne Wade at the halftime report. 22nd in the league in defense. They did acquire Drummond and Ben Simmons to improve this because the Nets' defense is their Achilles heel. This is this is what's cost Brooklyn a lot of games. Brooklyn is not a very, you know, not a very strong defensive team. As I mentioned, bottom tier in the league in defense. Drummond and Simmons... Two solid defenders. Drummond, I mean, better on the interior, of course, than the perimeter because Giannis fooled Drummond to knock down the, the game-tying three in regulation. And then, you know, Ben Simmons can guard multiple positions because he's a six-foot-ten point guard, six, almost a seven-foot-tall point guard. So I believe Simmons coming back is going to be the most essential thing for this Brooklyn team. That is the missing piece. Yeah, we fool Ben Simmons because he can't shoot. He still will give you 15, 16 a night. He may not knock down his shots from the line, but this guy is a defensive player of the year caliber player. And I believe Brooklyn needs this man in order to stop Giannis, in order to stop DeRozan, in order to stop anybody that's threatening in the East. Jason Tatum, another excellent player. I mean, these guys are working Brooklyn. And Brooklyn is going into, if the season was to end today, Brooklyn is the eighth seed. They have to at least get through the play-in to get into the actual playoff bracket. And by the way, if somehow, someway, Brooklyn has to play Toronto, Kyrie Irving cannot play in Toronto. He can't. Canada has yet to lift their mandates for vaccinations. So Kyrie Irving cannot even play in Toronto. This is also a huge problem. So with the potential of that possibly happening, very unsure with the way the seeding's going, Brooklyn needs, you know, they, they got to hope and pray that Ben Simmons is ready to go by the time the season ends. They really do. Because this defense is a problem. But, 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 it is hard to stop this offense. Because, like I said, they weren't on their A game last night. They were not playing their best. They were not the most efficient. But my God, 
if Bruce Brown can get cooking like that more consistently, I'm telling you, Brooklyn might be able to outscore everybody and be able to get through with their lackadaisical defense. We know what Kevin Durant can do. We know what Kyrie Irving can do. Bruce Brown, like I said last night, incredible performance from Bruce Brown. And he's his his shooting has has improved this season. It, it has. We know what Seth Curry can do. Seth Curry is, you know, he's playing very well. He's playing very well since he's got traded to Brooklyn. It's guys like Patty Mills, Goran Dragic. Can they add extra push? Can they add that extra, you know, 10, you know, 10 points in their, you know, 15 minutes of playtime? Can Edwards, you know, contribute? Can James Johnson get his head out of his you-know-what? I know he's not an offensive force, but James Johnson, you need to wake up. You played 11 minutes and didn't even get a didn't even get a point. I mean, you got Blake Griffin and LaMarcus Aldridge that aren't even playing anymore because you got Drummond. Like, these guys are old guys, but, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll put up better performances than James Johnson did. Claxton had himself a good game. 11 points, 8 boards in 24 minutes. Claxton, I really enjoy his game. Again, got to improve from the line. But Claxton's game is pretty solid. I just think if Brooklyn can put it together on the defensive end, if they get Ben Simmons, watch out. Fully healthy, that team is insane. That that team is unbeatable, I believe. I believe that is their only case here to defend Giannis, Tatum, and those guys is if Ben Simmons is healthy enough to come back. I really do. I mean, as soon as Giannis gets the ball, you got to like double team on ball pressure, even off ball pressure right away. Sometimes you got to force other guys to score. You can't let Giannis beat you because Durant was getting beat last night by Giannis. Anadokupo was bullying Durant. He pushed him off. The size difference in height may be the same, but in weight and strength, Giannis has a clear, a clear advantage. So, I mean, this is this was a great game to watch. I mean, this is as prime time as it gets. And we saw potentially not only a rewind of what happened last year, but could we see this as a potential matchup in the future? First, Brooklyn's got to get through the play-in if the season was 10 today. Also, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant had a very, very solid month in March as well. They're just the ninth pair of teammates in NBA history to average 30 points in the same month with minimum five games played together. So Durant and Irving are coming off some impressive, impressive months. So let's see what goes on moving forward for Brooklyn. I mean, like I said, my Knicks have been eliminated, so now I'm rooting for Brooklyn. It's it's New York till I die. So I got to really hope Brooklyn, you know, wakes up a little bit gets that defense, you know, shaped up a little bit, and hopefully Ben Simmons comes back healthy, ready to go to give that team an extra boost because I think he is their X factor because that changes that 22nd-ranked defense in the league. Just saying. Speaking of basketball, we're going to move to college, the Final Four. So we had the Elite Eight. We had the Elite Eight this past week. No upsets at all. Not one upset, so St. Peter's couldn't get the job done. Miami couldn't get the job done. We got Villanova in Kansas, Duke, North Carolina. We've got ourselves some top-notch, some top-notch matchups. So North Carolina, of course, you know, one of the bigger surprises in the Final Four because they were the eighth-ranked team in their in their bracket there, but they are the eighth seed going up against number two Duke, and Duke has been rolling offensively since North Carolina came in, rolled in right onto Coach K's court. Ruined his farewell at Duke University, and they stomped on him. They did. They, and I think that was a wake-up call for Duke's offense and just Duke in general, I believe. 
that loss right there lit a fire in their heads and was like, all right, we need to get going. Like, we see what we've been doing wrong. So we're going to go into that game first because, of course, this is the rivalry. This is Coach K's last ever matchup against North Carolina. And this, of course, you know, one of the biggest heated rivalries in not just college but sports in general. So Duke's strengths, number one in offensive efficiency. And they're pretty solid defenders when they don't get into foul trouble. That is going to be huge for Duke. Do not get into foul trouble. That is going to be a very, very, very key element. Because North Carolina is going to want to draw fouls. Duke cannot allow too many fouls. However, this is where the big difference between Duke and North Carolina comes in. Duke is outside the top 200 in the nation in defensive rebounding. North Carolina is number two. So North Carolina is a far better defensive rebounding team and just rebounding in general. And they can score all all over the place, you know, and they can score at will, especially at this last month. They have been able to just score efficiently all over the court. And I mean, they torched St. Peter's the way they should have been, they should have been when, you know, they faced Kentucky. St. Peter's defense, on ball pressure, off ball pressure, full court pressing, like they got under their opponent's skin. North Carolina just obliterated them. North Carolina embarrassed St. Peter's after what was a miraculous run. And that's what makes it not so embarrassing is because St. Peter's, we didn't expect them in the Elite Eight. This is the first time another a number 15-seeded team was in the Elite Eight, and we were not expecting it. And this is why it isn't embarrassing because we just kind of expected such an ending to the Cinderella run, and we never expected this team to get there. This is how it was supposed to be when they played Kentucky. But they out-rebounded them. They outscored them and they outplayed them in any fashion of the game. And that's the capability that North Carolina's team has. They will get under your skin and they can get double-double figures from their big guys and they can just blow you out in every aspect of the game, especially the rebounding game. And Duke is not the best defensive rebounding team. Much better offensive efficiency, though. Duke is a better offensive team. However, North Carolina's got the heavy edge on rebounds. So Duke right here, they've scored above 78 points in each game of the tournament. They just got to keep that going. They got to let the offense roll. Just keep things going. Let it flow simple. The game is com- is not coming to them. They are slowing the game down. That's what they've done well. If, and as I mentioned before, if they stay out of foul trouble, they will have a great chance of beating this team. North Carolina, of course, needs to stay out of foul trouble too, but they have more of a cautious reason why. So I already pointed out Duke needs to stay out of foul trouble, mostly because Pablo Boncaro is the center and core of that offense. So if he was to foul, let's say, Duke's in major trouble. Duke is in major trouble. But here is why North Carolina needs to avoid foul trouble. Their bench has only scored a total of four points between the Sweet 16 and the Elite Eight games. So their starters are doing everything for that team. They are contributing every single piece of that team on the offensive standpoint. Armando Baycott, for example, he's had 12 games this year with at least four fouls and has been fouled out of four games this season. North Carolina cannot lose this man against Duke with this rivalry, and especially with guys like Manic and Black. They're not going to be able to slow down Boncaro and Williams. They're not going to. Baycott might have to play, you know, more lenient so that way he stays out of this foul trouble game. And that might honestly, if he plays lenient, this could impact Duke on a positive note because they see Baycott not wanting to get into foul trouble. 
Duke wants to be more aggressive. So, I mean, between this game, um, I'm going to go with Duke here. I just feel like their offense is going to continue to roll. I don't think the defensive rebounding situation is going to impact them too heavily as of right now, looking in a day before the game. But I really think Boncaro and this team around Duke is just not going to lose to North Carolina again. They're not going to allow back-to-back losses for the for this team, especially with the rivalry, Coach K's last game. I just don't think this season is going to allow Duke to lose two straight games to North Carolina. I think that that loss at home in Duke's in Duke's final game with Coach K at home, that was the point where Duke was like, okay, we need to wake up and let's get rolling in this tournament. And since then, their offense has been on fire. They have been incredible, efficient. I can't even go into it. It's 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 been it's probably one of the best offensive Duke performances I've seen in my in my existence. I mean, I wasn't alive to see Leitner. I was young to see guys like JJ Redick. I, I barely even saw JJ Redick. I'm pretty sure I, I was really young, like Redick, Battier, all those guys. I was able to see the Austin River Seth Curry duo. I was able to see Jay Okafor. I mean, I mean. Zion Williamson and R.J. Barrett, Cam Reddish's crew. That team was not as efficient and not as consistent as this one, as this team is. They were more exciting by far. But that team was not as consistent. This team seems, this team seems one of the better Duke teams I have ever seen. I really believe so. So I got Duke going on this one. Villanova in Kansas. Bill Self leads the Kansas Jayhawks. Number one seeded team. They are very good when defending shooters from the three-point. They've only allowed 29.5% from three. They get a lot of second-chance opportunities, some solid uh, offensive rebounding. This team does struggle to defend driving guards sometimes, though. Typically allow fast breaks a lot and typically are unable to, to defend guys when they're driving to the basket, whether it's fouling them or letting them blow by them. But I still believe... Their defense, especially the perimeter defense around the three, that's going to be a huge, a huge deal. And Villanova also goes into the game shorthanded. Justin Moore towards Achilles against Houston. That is a huge loss for this team. However, like I said before, Kansas does struggle at times to guard players driving to the basket. So let's say, you know, Villanova drives to the basket. Kansas falls behind per usual foul. Foul goes to the player goes to the line. This team for Villanova, best free throw shooting team in the NCAA history. As a team, 83% from the line, and they make a lot of threes. So we got a great offensive three-point shooting team versus a great defending three-point team. And Villanova, like I said, shorthanded Justin Moore out for the rest of the tournament. If Villanova can outduel that great defense from Kansas at the three, I think Villanova could pull this off. However, Villanova somehow, someway, like I said, the best free throw shooting team in NCAA also has the worst two-point offense in the league. And they've been so three-point reliant. So, I mean, this team shoots a lot of threes. So if they can't get mid-range games going, if they can't get to the line, Kansas is going to win. And that's what I think is going to happen. I believe Kansas is going to win. They're going to lock them down. And I think the Jayhawks come out on top. We got a Duke and Kansas matchup. Bill Self versus Mike Shishisky in the final. And as I mentioned before, this this Kansas team, they they have some solid, some solid offensive rebounding. They get blocks. 
They get boards on defense, not just offense. David McCormack is pretty solid. This guy has been an X factor for this team. And I think if he comes in against Villanova, does his does his dirty work down low, this guy is going to be the impact player for this ballgame. And for Villanova, as I mentioned before, they just got to win the three-point battle because if they can't get to the line enough, if their mid-range game is not going well, and they can't win the three-point battle, they are in trouble. And like I said, they're shorthanded, and they just need to make sure they keep their composure going and just get get firing from three. They need to find ways to get to the line. They need to get, you know, they need to be aggressive going to the basket. They need to. They need to get to the line because they got all the confidence in the world. They're, they're the best in NCAA history from the charity stripe. So this team needs to be aggressive on offense, Villanova. They need to be aggressive, not overly aggressive, but they need to get they need to play dirty, get to the line, and just find the open man from three because their mid-range game, I think, is not going to pull off. And they need to catch Kansas sleeping when it comes to defending around the perimeter. They do. But I still got Kansas right now. And I guess till next episode, we'll find out who I believe who wins. So we'll find out. I'm going for Duke, so I'm going to have Duke over Kansas. I am going to. But right now, I got Duke and Kansas as the winners in the final four. Major League Baseball, we are six days away till opening day. This is the last Friday without baseball as we kick off Yankees-Red Sox April 7th for opening day. That's going to be quite the showdown. So I'm going to go through each division here. I'm going to give my predictions on the standings of a little, you know, two early uh, predictions, I'd say. I'm going to start with the AL East because why not? This is probably the most competitive division in baseball, both in the AL and the NL. The East is just stacked for both leagues. I'm going to go with the American League East. Sadly, the Orioles are going to be in last. They're rebuilding, but they got quite the farm system coming up especially top prospect Adelie Rushman. I think he's going to be just a tremendous player. And he's a catcher, so that's going to be very fun to see. Fourth place. Fourth place. This is where it gets tough because the Rays last year were the only American League team to win 100 games. Boston made it far into the playoffs. The Yankees, you know, we're expecting them to win 90-plus. I have Toronto as the division winners. I really do. I believe the Toronto Blue Jays have the most set offense because that lineup, one through six, I mean, Bichette, I believe he's potentially going to be the best shortstop in the league. I believe Bo Bichette has that talent if he's able to stay more disciplined at the plate. For a guy that looks like he tends to chase a lot out of the zone, he hit almost 300 last year. I mean, Bo Bichette is special. I mean, you got Bichette, you got Vladimir Guerrero Jr., who, you know, would have been the MVP last year if it wasn't for Shohei Otani being a two-way star. Got Matt Chapman, the new third baseman, replacing Marcus Simeon technically on the offensive force, but Kevin Biggio is going to move the second, replace Simeon over there. You're losing 40 plus home runs with Marcus Simeon last year, but Matt Chapman is a solid defender. He's a platinum glove winner, multiple gold gloves, and he's a, he's a pretty he's he's a very respectable hitter. He's one of the better two way players in this league. Very underrated. We don't talk about Matt Chapman a whole lot. You got Teoscar Hernandez, who led the team in RBIs last year. Lourdes Gurriel, he can hit. I mean, George Springer, can't forget about George Springer. They bring him in, but he's got to stay healthy. That's just the big factor for him. And I believe George Springer is the X factor of this team. If he can stay healthy and bring back the numbers he did in Houston, this team gets over the top. And here's and this is where it gets even better. The pitching staff improved. They got Barrios. They locked him in after acquiring him last year at the deadline. 
They signed Kevin Gaussman, who had a very solid tenure with the Giants. They got Kikichu and Ryu. And I mean, and they got Alex Manoa. So these this 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 Toronto team has a very solid starting five. And I believe Kikichu is their X factor in terms of pitching because he had a very, very solid first half of the MLB season last year. Second half fell off the map completely with Seattle. I believe if he has a consistent season, Toronto can easily win this division. So I gave my top team and I gave my bottom team. So I'm going to go with fourth place. I'm going to go with the Boston Red Sox. And I'm saying this because I believe their pitching is not set. James Paxton's not going to be starting off the year. Chris Sale's not starting off the year. So Boston goes into the season with very, very minimal pitching depth, starting and relieving. Their bullpen is not. They lose Adam Ottavino last this past offseason. So I believe this pitching staff is not really, you know, going to push them over the top. If they're going to finish in a playoff spot, they're going to have to hit their way there. And, I mean, this team's got it. Raphael Devers, Xander Bogarts, they signed Trevor Story. Bobby Daubach showed some promise, especially towards the end of last year. The thing that really is a blow to that offense was trading Hunter Renfro for Jackie Bradley Jr., who hit below 200 last year. Yeah, they liked their defense and his loyalties to Boston for all the years he played there. You know, he got them a ring, helped them get a ring. Gold glove defender. But Hunter Renfro had an amazing year last year. He played very well for the for the Red Sox, and he he was a huge he was a huge part of pushing that team forward to a, to be a playoff team, a wild card team that pushed them past Tampa last year. And Hunter Renfro mashes left handed pitching, and you get a left handed bat in Jackie Bradley Jr., who is not much of a bat. So hopefully the story signing makes up for it. But as of right now, I got Boston at number four. But do not be surprised if this Red Sox team hits their way to a playoff spot. Number three, the New York Yankees. So as of right now, I got the Yankees at three. They've cut down the strikeout rate. They've increased their base running, contact hitting, and defense. They've, But this is in terms of the analyticals. What's going to really, really help the Yankees is availability. Can this team consistently be available and healthy to push them forward? Josh Donaldson, entering 36-37 age season, has had injuries the past couple years, and last year was relatively a more healthy year for him. Can that calf stay healthy? He claims he's in one of the be- he's in like the best shape of his career right now, but that's expected from every athlete at this point, especially towards the end of their careers. Can Josh Donaldson stay healthy? Can Aaron Judge stay on the field? Can Gene Carlos Stanton stay on the field? And you got guys like Miguel Andor who haven't played in a couple years since being a rookie of the year a rookie of the year candidate. He's been hurt. He hasn't touched. He hasn't sniffed the baseball field in forever. It seems like. I honestly forgot as a Yankee fan that Miguel Andor existed, and he's not even going to be starting. But if Josh Donaldson goes down, Andor is the backup third baseman. I mean, you also got DJ LeMahieu to put there, and I'm sure they're going to put him there before Andor. But I mean, can DJ? Stay on the field. Consistency with this team is also important because DJ struggled last year. Glaber Torres struggled mightily last year. Aaron Hicks can't even stay on the field. Another guy. Luis Severino, a dominant starting pitcher who is supposed to be Garrett Cole's, you know, sidekick in a way. Can't stay healthy. He already had, like, Luis Severino has already had muscle soreness since spring training started. I mean... He, I believe Luis Severino is the X factor of this team. I really do. If he can stay healthy and dominate the way he did, this team is going to be set. And I believe they, I believe the New York Yankees are a playoff team. I do. If they can stay healthy and produce the way they are capable of doing it, 
no doubt a playoff team. But it's guys like Josh Donaldson, Luis Severino, Aaron Hicks. Can these guys stay healthy and produce the way that they're expected to? And stop putting Aaron Hicks at the top of the lineup. It's time to not worry about that. I believe that's just BS at this point. Aaron Hicks probably won't even get as much playing time because I'm sure they're going to ha- find ways to have Judge in center, Gallo in left, Stanton in right, or even the other way around, Gallo in right, Stanton in left. So Louis Severino, stay healthy. I mean, this Yankees bullpen, you got Louis Saiga. You need Chapman to wake up a little bit, Chad Green to wake up, um, Clay Holmes. These guys, This is not a bad bullpen that the Yankees have here. But again, consistency and availability, especially when it comes to health, is important for this New York Yankees team if they want to make the playoffs. Number two, the Tampa Bay Rays. And it's exactly why. They basically have the same exact team. They lock in Wander Franco long-term. If they trade Austin Meadows somehow, some way before the season starts or during the season, I believe they'll fall down. They're pitching, you know, they'll the Rays find ways to win. The Rays have players that come up in clutch situations. The Rays have great strategical analysis of the game. They have great strategy. They know when to pull pitchers out of the game, when to keep them in, perfect matchups. The only time they've really messed up, really, is the World Series of Blake Snell. That seems to be the only case I see. But, I mean, the Rays starting pitching is not is not blowing anybody's mind. And I believe Tyler Glass now is not as, you know, he's, he's a little overrated in my opinion. But this Rays team, they find ways to win. They are a sneaky, good team, and they will be. They won 100 games last year. They, and, by the way, this is a team that also wins, and they don't get anybody to come to their games because their stadium is terrible, their promotion is terrible, and they're always talking about leaving Tampa every year. This team's low budget, and the fact that they spent $18 million a year on the Wando Franco contract is probably a franchise record. Like, we actually sat back and were like, wow, the Rays spent money. But when it comes to this kid, they're, they're, they're propping him to be the next big guy in the league. So if they can build around Wander Franco, get, you know, G-Man Choi, get Randy Rosarena, all these guys, Mike Zanino, if they get all these guys rolling, this Rays team is going to be very, very sneaky once again. The question is, can they make that extra push in the playoffs? Because they failed to do so. I don't give them the 2020 year in terms of making the World Series as an excuse for pushing it extra because it was a shortened season. The Rays have always typically been a first-half team. This past season proved that point wrong. The Rays seem to always do well in the first half in the last several years, and then they choke down when the Yankees, the Red Sox, they merge. So I believe if the Rays can stick to being a typical, consistent team, as always, because Austin Meadows is a 230 hitter. He hit 234 last season, but he still had 106 RBIs. Why? Because this Rays team, when they get hits... It's in clutch situations. It's in when runners are in scoring position. This team knows how to drive runs in when it matters. You don't hit 230 and drive in 106 RBIs typically. That doesn't happen too often. Austin Meadows is the type of hitter that will get the big hit for a team. He will. And that's why the Rays win games. But I really do believe that the Red Sox, the Yankees, and the Rays, they can, they can you know, flip-flop around for two, three, and four. But as of right now, I got the Blue Jays locking up the East. And then the Rays, Yankees, Red Sox, Orioles. The AL Central, I think it's a lock, the Chicago White Sox. They're debatably the best team in baseball. Um, I believe the Chicago White Sox are easily running away with the Central Division Championship because Luis Robert 
insane player, a sneaky caliber AL MVP candidate. Eloy Jimenez is bound to explode. Tim Anderson does his thing. Yoan Moncada, another player, bound to explode. The starting pitching is not bad. They did lose Carlos Rodon. Michael Kopech is expected to replace him. But Giolito, Lance Lynn, they're coming off some solid years. Uh, the bullpen. Um, so the bullpen at one point, I believe, was the best in baseball. But it looks like they're losing Garrett Crochet for the year with Tommy John. This this news just came in about like 20 minutes ago. So Garrett Crochet looks like he's going to get Tommy John by the looks of it. It's not 100%, but it's looking like it. And they just traded Craig Kimbrell this morning for A.J. Pollock. So Craig Kimbrell is now going to be the closer for the Dodgers the way it looks, and the White Sox add another outfielder in A.J. Pollock. So I still believe Chicago comes out on top. They got Liam Hendricks, the best closer in baseball, debatably. They still got Bummer. They got Ronaldo Lopez. They got Joe Kelly, Kendall Graveman. This team has solid pitching names on their roster. And on the bat side of things, they can swing it. Jose Abreu, a former AL MVP. He stays consistent. This this guy is impossible to stop. So the Chicago White Sox here, I got them winning. I got the Minnesota Twins in second place. Minnesota had quite an interesting offseason. They went from being a very bottom-tier team in this division to getting the best, debatably the best free agent in baseball in Carlos Correa. So they get Carlos Correa, probably the best defensive shortstop in the league. A pretty reliable bat, an analytical, you know, an analytical inspiration, meaning like this guy in the analytical statistics is an unbelievable player. They acquire Sonny Gray, Gary Sanchez, and Gio Urshela, and they extend Byron Buxton. Now, Byron Buxton for this team, I believe, is the X Factor, and here's why. Health. Once again, Byron Buxton has not had a healthy season, like ever. I mean, he's only played over 100 games once, and that was in 2017. He hasn't played over 100 games since then. He hasn't played over 70 games since 2019. So this guy is never healthy, and they lock him in. This guy was a big-time trade big-time trade piece that was being talked in the rumor mill, but they extend him and lock him in with a no-trade clause. So Byron Buxton is, is their center fielder moving forward for the next several years, and I believe he is the X Factor because he needs to stay healthy if this team wants to win. There's no excuse. I also forgot to mention um, Eloy Jimenez is my X factor for the Chicago White Sox because if he explodes, this team is dangerous. But back to the Twins. Um, yeah, this Twins team just looks ready to roll in terms of, you know, hopefully getting a playoff spot. They're still looking to add pitching. They did add Chris Archer, nothing special, but it's still, you know, for depth. And they're still looking to add, you know, Sean Manet or Frankie Montez from the A's. They've been in talks with them. I've got the Cleveland Guardians at three. I believe Shane Bieber is going to come back and have an excellent season, possibly a Cy Young caliber season. Jose Ramirez is going to do his thing. He is a pending free agent, though. So I believe if Cleveland decides to trade Ramirez, they will fall in the rankings. But as of right now, I got Cleveland at three. And to be honest, I mean, there's really not a whole lot of X factors in this division. I believe Jose Ramirez and Shane Bieber are their guys. If they can, you know, they're going to carry this team. I mean, there's really nobody else surrounding them. Detroit, same thing. I believe I got Detroit four. They do have big improvements with Javier Baez and Eduardo Rodriguez. Hopefully Spencer Torkelson comes up this season. Maybe Riley Green makes an appearance to their top prospects. And I think it all depends. Like I said, if Jose Ramirez gets traded, I think Detroit finishes third. Javier Baez needs to be more consistent. He needs to, you know, get that batting average back up. I believe, though, that the Tigers X factor is 
is Haymar Candelario. And I'm saying this because he led the MLB in doubles and nobody talks about it. Candelario is a pretty underrated player. This kid can can swing it. And if Javier Baez, you know, has the performance that we expect with his contract, if let's say Torkelson and Riley Green both come up in the next, you know, this season or the next year or two, they produce. If they're able to improve their pitching, because they did get Michael Pineda and Eduardo Rodriguez. And they also acquired a very good defensive catcher in Tucker Barnhart. So if Candelario can swing it with this with this lineup that's potentially ready to like start moving forward in their rebuilding process, I'd say Detroit can be a sneaky team. I really believe it. So I got Candelario over at the hot corner is the guy to watch out for for Detroit. And I think, like I said, Cleveland and Detroit can intertwine at three and four, all depending on Jose Ramirez's status. And in last place, I got Kansas City. I mean, Bobby Wood Jr. is ready to go. It seems like he's having an incredible spring. And he could be up by the end of this year. He's the number one prospect. But like I said, I believe Kansas City, you know, they're not really, they're not a threat at all. So I got them in last place. The AL West. Now this one's interesting because I see Houston still finishing out on top. They still got a great offense. They lose Carlos Correa, which is huge. But you can't ignore Altuve, Alvarez. You can't you can't ignore Tucker. Guys like that you can't ignore. And they also have a very good pitching, like they do. They got Valdez, Verlander, Urquidy, they got Garcia, I mean, and they got McCullers when he comes back. And I believe, you know, Jake Odorizzi might play a role in the starting rotation. So this team is not bad on the starting pitching. It's nothing really threatening. Verlander is getting up there in age and coming off a big surgery. So we can see what Houston's up to, but I believe they can still find a way to sneak their way to first place. Dusty Baker, you know, he knows how to manage the game. He knows how to manage the game of baseball. Seattle Mariners, I believe they're in second. They came up with a very surprising season last year, winning about 90 games. They just acquired Jesse Winker, who's probably the best left fielder in the league right now. And they also acquired Eugenio Suarez, although not really a, a an average contact hitter. He still can hit 20-plus bombs. And I believe Seattle is taking the steps, the right, the right steps forward. So I believe getting Winker was like, in a way, that missing piece to the puzzle. And I believe Jared Kalanick, he's a huge, huge part to the future success for Seattle. I believe he's the X factor for this team going into this season. A center fielder with a lot of promise, a lot of a lot of potential, and a guy that has had a lot of eyes on him since being traded for Robinson Cano. So I believe Jared Kalanick is a very, very huge piece to hopefully a, a successful Seattle season. They haven't been to the playoffs in, in a, a long time. And, you know, Julio Rodriguez is still bound to show up in the MLB. And this kid can hit. This kid, I believe, is going to be a superstar. Julio Rodriguez, look out for that name, especially when he comes up to Seattle with what they've put around him as of right now. The Angels, I believe, are in third, and this is where, you know, you're going to be like, why are the Angels in third with, you know, Shoei Otani, Mike Trout, Anthony Rendon? They're never healthy. Noah Syndergaard is going to be that X factor to that team. They got him a one-year, 20-plus million dollars for a one-year contract. Can he be what we know that Thor can be? The bullpen is tremendously improved. They got Iglesias back. They signed Aaron Loop. They signed Archie Bradley. They signed Tepra. I mean, this this bullpen improved. And can Mike Trout, Shoei Otani stay healthy? Can Anthony Rendon stay healthy? I mean, this is a huge, you know, thing. Can Justin Upton, you know, maybe put up some respectable numbers? Can Noah Syndergaard be the ace for that team a team that has needed pitching desperately and what has kept mike trout out of the playoffs for a long time can this pitching be enough 
to get to the playoffs, potentially. Texas Rangers at four. Um, I believe the Rangers, of course, tremendously improved. I do not believe in their pitching at all. John Gray is not the guy to push you forward. They made tremendous improvements on the offense. You know, they already have Adelis Garcia. They just signed Corey Seager, Marcus Simeon. They made tremendous improvements. They trade for Mitch Garver. I just don't think they have enough pitching to push them over the top as a first-place team. And then the last three building Oakland A's. The Oakland's unloaded, and they're going to continue to unload. I think Sean Murphy, Frankie Montez, and Sean Manea, they're going to be gone either by the season starts or throughout the trade or till the de- trade deadline. They're going to be gone, and I don't see Oakland you know, making a big push at all. And going back to Texas, I almost forgot to prove this point. Corey Seager's never healthy. He got a huge contract, 10 years, $325 million, and this guy is never healthy. He knows how to hit in the postseason when it matters. He has proven that. But it's a matter of, can this guy stay healthy? In his seven years, he has never played 162 games. The closest he's done that to is his second year in the league. Since 2018, he's only played over 100 games once. And that was 134 games in 2019 where he led the league with 44 doubles. So, I mean, Corey Seager can mash. He's a, he's a, he's a pretty respectable defender. But can he stay healthy is the question. And can you get another 40-plus home run season from Marcus Simeon? This guy kind of exploded on the offensive end out of nowhere. He improved tremendously from defense, especially, you know, being a gold glove finalist. And he also was a guy in Oakland who was a, who was a liability at defense, leading the league in errors at one time. Then, be, you know, works with Ron Washington and improves his defense. So this guy is a very solid, you know, defender and all-around player. But can he repeat another 40 home run season? Like, we didn't expect Marcus Simeon on a one-year I think $18 million contract with Toronto to put up the numbers he did. This was a, this that that contract was a, let's see what you can do. This was a show me to improve that you're worth, you know, some big time money. And Marcus Simeon had a season that you just, just couldn't ignore. It was an MVP caliber season. So those are the concerns with Texas. And like I said, I'm not confident with their pitching. I'm not confident with their pitching whatsoever. Oakland, like I said, rebuilding, not even going to win like, not even going to win the division, not even be in the top three. To the NL East, the, the the Atlanta Braves, the defending champions, I got them in first. I do. I got them over the Mets, and this is why. Ronald Acuna is coming back, ladies and gentlemen. They, they lost Freddie Freeman, but you replaced Freddie Freeman with possibly the best option possible in Matt Olson, a left-handed slugger, belted over 35 home runs, belted over 100 RBIs, I mean, this kid can mash, and he's also a very solid defender. I believe he's got a couple gold gloves in his resume. And they still have the best infield in baseball. So if you take out Freddie Freeman and you put in Matt Olson, that infield still drives over 100 RBIs as of last year. And they lose they lose Jock Peterson and Jorge Soler, you know, the guys that helped elevate this team in the playoffs and to win the division. But they get Rosario back. And Ronald Acuna, ladies and gentlemen, possibly the best all-around player in baseball, is coming back. They also make tremendous improvement with their bullpen and getting Kenley Jansen, a one-year $18 million deal, like another prove it to me that you you know your career is still worth it kind of contract. But it looks like he's going to get the ball in the ninth inning probably. Maybe the eighth with Will Smith. You still got him. But I believe this Atlanta Braves team still gets over the hall. Austin Riley can swing it. Dansby, if he puts it together, I believe he's the X factor of this team. Dansby Swanson can put up a season where his contract is close to expiring. And Dansby puts it all together, then this kid is going to get paid. He is going to get paid. 
And I believe, like I said, Dansby, you're the X Factor. So congratulations. I got the Mets number two, and it's very clear why. Jacob deGrom, Max Scherzer, Chris Bassett. That's a very, very dangerous three-headed monster. Now, Jacob deGrom is getting MRIs. So fingers crossed he's okay because we just want to see a healthy Jacob deGrom in his final year on his Mets contract. He can opt out, which it looks like it's going to happen. Um, the Mets, of course, made some solid you know, free agent signings. They splashed up with Starling Marte, Mark Canna, um, Eduardo Escobar. They made some big deals, and they paid Max Scherzer $40 million a year, and he's going into his age 37, 38 season. So the Mets have a lot of high expectations, as well as you know Steve Cohen just buying the team, and we've already got a, a rich contract under Francisco Lindor. Robinson Cano is making a lot of money. Now you got Starling Marte making money. You got Max Scherzer making money. And you're potentially going to give Jacob DeGrom a lot of money if, if he opts out. And I'm sure extensions will be in the works. So I got the Mets number two. And who is the X factor for the New York Mets? I mean, I'm, I'm confident in DeGrom. I'm, I mean, if he's ha- when he's healthy, I'm confident in Scherzer. I just think the X factor is going to go to Pete Alonso and Starling Marte. I believe those two guys, if they get rolling this season, they can boost that lineup. I think Francisco Lindor will improve. I think last year was, you know, a struggle. He heated up a little bit at the end. But I believe Pete Alonso needs to, you know, have himself a 3,500-plus RBI season. And I think Starling Marte needs to replicate what he did last year. He needs to show why he's worth the contract because I have a weird feeling Starling Marte might be one of those typical New York Met busts as well as the other free agents that it required, except for Scherzer. So I got the Mets at second. Phillies are in third place, and it's very simple why. Can their starting pitching be enough? I don't know. Aaron Nola, Zach Wheeler, solid one-two punch. What about the rest of them? Maybe. The bullpen, not not reliable. You know, they've, they got Familia. They got Brad Hand, Corey Neville. I mean, can this bullpen be, can this bullpen be trusted? And this is where... The Dave Dombrowski theory comes in. I've noticed Dave Dombrowski's done this with all of his teams. Tigers, Red Sox, now Phillies. He absolutely loads the lineup. He loads the hitting lineup like crazy. And he abandons the bullpen. I mean, we go back to when he was with the Tigers. He had Prince Fielder, Miguel Cabrera, Victor Martinez in the same lineup. But that bullpen was not reliable. It wasn't. And you look at this lineup right here. I mean, Bryce Harper coming off an MVP season. They signed Nick Castellanos. They signed Kyle Schwarber. Gene Segura, a solid contact hitter. Didi Gregorius is the X factor to me on this team. If he can put it together, my goodness, because his job's in jeopardy because they have that kid Bryson Scott coming up as a shortstop prospect. If Didi Gregorius can put it together, then I can see Philly jumping to number two in the in the standings. But again, Reese Hoskins can hit. JT Real Muto, not a bad hitter. Alex Bohm, I mean, he struggled a lot last year, especially on the field, but when he puts it together hitting, this kid can can make contact on the ball. He can put the ball in play. This team might be the absolute worst defensive team in the league right now, and probably, as the statistics go, in the league in general. I mean, Ramuda's a great catcher defensively, but, I mean, Castellanos and Schwarber cannot field. I mean, they can't. So Philly is going to have to absolutely hit, 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 mash, mash, mash their way to the postseason. There's no excuse and there's no other way they can get into the playoffs without hitting. 
Miami fourth. Miami made a nice jump getting Solaire. They got obviously Garcia. They're still not a top dogs in the in the National League yet. They missed out on Castellanos. They really wanted to reel them in, but they got Solaire. They made up for it. But I still don't see Miami being, you know, a top notch. They did. They got young guys. Jazz Chisholm's coming up and he's gonna be excellent. This team right here, I mean, Miami, be on the lookout for them in a few years. I really believe it. And then Washington Nationals in last place. Um, I don't think they got the pitching. If Steven Strasburg can stay healthy, I don't think that's enough. Juan Soto is the best overall hitter in the league. Nelson Cruz, you know, he's pushing 40 years old, but, he, you know, he still hits 30-plus home runs. So, I mean, this that duo can hit, hit you know, 60-plus home runs between the two of them. But I don't see, you know, I don't see the Nationals at all making some sort of push. The NL Central, the Milwaukee Brewers are coming out on top once again. I mean, they have three guys in their starting rotation that ERA is below three. Corbin Burns coming off a Cy Young year. You got Brandon Woodruff and Freddie Peralta, also ERA is below three. All three of those guys are legit, young and legit. Adrian Hauser had a 3.22 ERA last year, and Eric Lauer had 3.19. So, I mean, this rotation is pretty disgusting. And they also add Andrew McCutcheon and Hunter Renfro to their lineup, who can hit left-handed pitching, such as, you know, Max Fried, who shut them down in the playoffs last year. So Milwaukee improves a little bit on all aspects of the game. They lose Eduardo Escobar, but they do keep, you know, Willie Adamas. They still got him. Can Yelich, that's my that's my X factor, can Yelich return to that MVP form? Can Christian Yelich elevate to where he his game was before he, he got injured? And this team's got a great bullpen. I mean, Josh Hader, Brad Boxberger. I mean, this team's, I think this team's set for number one. Number two, St. Louis Cardinals. Tyler O'Neill can play. Nolan Arenado can play. And you know, they get a nice little reunion with Yadier last year, Albert Pujols last year, and possibly Adam Wainwright's last year, although he did have a pretty impressive end to his season last year, Adam Wainwright. He still he he still showed a little something in the tank there. I did and then you know, Paul DeYoung can mash. I just think this team is just certified to be number two. I don't think they can topple Milwaukee, and I don't think anybody in this division can. The Chicago Cubs, number three. They made some interesting little moves. I know they're in that rebuilding process. But they pay Stroman. That was interesting. Then they were in the rumors to get Carlos Correa, but they settled with Anderson Simmons, which I don't get. If you're going to sign Stroman, why not add a big bat to that lineup and, you know, provide some spark in, in Wrigley Field? And I think this X factor for this is Clint Frazier. If he can stay healthy and, you know, he can back up his talk and his ego and the little, you know, grudge he has with the New York Yankees right now, then Clint Frazier, if he has a good year, the Cubs can elevate to a possible playoff team. I really do. Cincinnati Reds and Pittsburgh Pirates are both in rebuilding mode. The Reds are unloading everybody right now. And Pittsburgh, you know, they don't have anybody threatening. I mean, Pittsburgh has Brian Reynolds, but I think I think he should be traded for, you know, a pretty solid prospect, you know, return. So I have Cincinnati fourth because they still got Louis Castillo. They still got some guys over there. They got Hunter Green coming up in their farm system. And then Pittsburgh's going to finish last. To the west side, National League West, I think we can all guess who's going to be in first place in this one. Yes, if you thought the Los Angeles Dodgers, you are basically correct. I mean, I don't see why not, because this lineup is insane. They did lose A.J. Pollock as their potential DH left fielder, but they get Craig Kimbrell to boost their bullpen up a little bit. But, I mean, is that really a big loss in their lineup? I mean, look at this. You got Freddie Freeman. You got Justin Turner. You got Trey Turner, you got Chris Taylor, you got Will Smith, 
you got Mookie Betts, and you got Cody Bellinger. So I don't think the Dodgers are really panicking in terms of losing A.J. Pollock in a trade for Craig Kimbrell. And the, the rotation. The rotation. I mean, Walker Buehler, Clayton Kershaw, Dustin May is coming back, Julio Rios coming off a 20-game win season. I don't see the Dodgers, you know, not struggling at all to not finish on top. Number two, I got the Giants. The Giants did lose Chris Bryant and Kevin Gaussman. They do make a gamble and get Carlos Rodon, who has injury history, but if he stays healthy, this guy can dominate. So I think their starting rotation is looking pretty solid. Uh, they do lose Buster Posey, again, to, to retirement. Third place, I got the Padres. They're starting off the season without Fernando Tatis. They did acquire Luke Voigt to add extra power in his absence, but I still don't think the pitching staff is going to be on point. I'm confident in Joe Musgrove. I don't know how I feel about Blake Snell and you, Darvish, especially moving forward, you know, with their futures. They're getting older a little bit. And these two guys are my X factors, Snell and Darvish. Can they bounce back and can they, you know, push San Diego over the hump in the division and make the playoffs? Because we know the Dodgers are already making it. They're probably going to win the division. Can they go past the Giants is the question. So let's see what the Padres can do this season. You know, they got Manny Machado. When Tatis comes back, he'll be fine. Jake Rowanworth, solid hitter. Luke Voigt, I think he's he's a he's a better improvement than Eric Hosmer. He's been a disappointment, Hosmer. So, I mean, let's see what they got going on in San Diego. I got Colorado in fourth just because of Chris Bryant and Randall Gritchick being added to the offense. I think those two guys were pretty solid additions. And, I mean, I don't see this team going far because their pitching is not impressive, and it never really has been because of the ballpark at Coors Field. You know, Chris Bryant is going to put up some insane numbers out there. I mean, he, he got paid, and I believe he went out there because Chris Bryant not only got paid a really nice contract for himself— but his offensive numbers are about to be pretty mind-blowing, I'd say. And then last place, I got the Diamondbacks. So that is all for your Lux ran out. So as of right now, I mean, the Braves, the Brewers, the Dodgers, the Jays, the Blue Jays, of course, the White Sox, and the Astros are my winners in the divisions. And I mean, like I said, anything can happen. This AL East, you know, the Rays, Yankees, and Red Sox, they're going to be battling between two and four. And I mean, same with the NL East. I think the, the Mets... And the Phillies can can bash it out. And, I mean, like I said, baseball, you never know what can happen. So this is your Lux ran out. I am your host, Julius Lux. We'll see you next time. For those tuning in for the first time, thank you for listening. And for those that are tuning in once again, it's always a pleasure to have you. And I appreciate you guys listening. It means a lot more than you know. And this is something I love to do. I love talking sports. And I can do it all day, every day if I could. But, you know, school. <laughs> so... My name is Julius Lux, your Lux ran out, and I'll see you next time.